0: Well, Pastor Keith is still recovering from back surgery, and I would continue to encourage you to pray for him. Uh, Lord willing, he will be back in the pulpit next week. Uh, so for this morning, uh, I, I, I heard someone say, after I preached the last message, I preached that message out of Psalm 119, uh, that the, that God speaks, his word is sweet. My only application point for that whole morning was, uh, read the word, know the word, love the word. And uh, I had someone come up to me and say, okay, well, Brandon, what, what's Keystone doing to help people know how to study the Bible, know how to read the Bible? Uh, and I thought, oh, that is, a, that is a good question. In some ways, it's like I gave you a beehive, said, there's honey in there, go get it. And you're thinking, well, Brandon, there's bees in there. Am I gonna get, do I need some tools? Do I need a fogger? Do I need a special suit? Um, All good questions. And so this morning I want to try something maybe a little bit different in that um, while I um, bring us to the Word of God, I also want to show you how I uh, arrived at the Word of God. Uh, And so we'll follow three questions that I ask every time I um, come into the Word to to study it, to read it, to know what God is saying. Uh, I want to know what does it say, I want to know what does it mean, and I want to know what should I do because of what's in there. And I'll take us through that process uh, at the same time, getting us back into the doctor's cure. So first step, whenever I open up the word of God and I want to know it, uh, my first step is um, to pray and knowing that it is the Holy Spirit who gives me spiritual eyes to see, uh, a spiritual mind, a spiritual heart to receive it. Uh, and so would you join me in praying that God would use this time to uh, open our eyes, to see him more clearly, that we might know how we might live more differently. Father, we love your word. Lord, we sang its praises two weeks ago. We want to be like the psalmist who craves to know your word, who delights in your word, who cries out, open my eyes, let me see, don't hide your good news from us. Lord, we ask that your spirit would be at work this morning. Let us see the truth that Jesus will teach us. But I pray, Lord, that you would not just fill our minds with knowledge. But I pray, Lord, that it might change the way that we feel about everything. That it might change the way we feel about the things in our lives, our family, our friends, our money, our jobs, our neighbors, our future, uh, where we live, where we go to school, whether we go to school that it might transform not just the way that we think and feel, but then live in it. So, Lord, we ask for your spirit to do the work that we cannot do on our own. Let your word show its power this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I said, we're going to jump back into the doctor's cure, and we've not been in there since June, and so you might need some help knowing where to go next, and um, uh, I'll invite you to turn to Luke chapter 20. If you can remember, my, my last major milestone was Pastor Charlie preached uh, about Jesus entering into uh, Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And Charlie did it on Palm Sunday. And so when, I, when I'm studying the scriptures, one of the first things that I want to do is to figure out what does it say? And so I provided this little um, clip or this uh, little slide And if you receive the notes, don't worry about copying all of them down. I I put them on the back of my notes. Usually I put just application or follow-up questions on the back of my notes. Uh, Today it is what's on the slide here. And when we get into comprehension, we want to know what does the Bible have to say. And so to do that, the first step is not going to be unfamiliar to you. Read. Uh, But I provided just a, a little bit of help. Read prayerfully. Uh, believing that the Holy Spirit's uh, the one who's going to illuminate it. Read it slowly. Oftentimes, if you've got a text message, you just buzz through that thing and you miss words. Well, when it comes to the Scriptures, we want to read it slowly. We want to read it repeatedly. As I was preparing for this, I read through this passage several times, over and over and over again, in some ways just marinating in it for a while that I might absorb what's happening in it. I want to read it inquisitively. That, and, and here's where those of you who are curious and always are asking why. Why, why, why? Okay, this is your time. When you're reading through the scriptures, be thinking, all right, why, why did they do that? Why did God say that? Why did he include that? Why didn't he include that? You can be in some ways like an investigative reporter, which is I'll get to there um, in a second. Uh, inquisitively and, and then patiently. Uh, not every time that you open the book will it make sense to you right away, but be uh, be patient. Ask questions like an investigative reporter, asking the who, what, where, when, why, all of these questions because we want ultimately at the bottom to get to a summary of it. Some of the things that might help you to be able to comprehend what the author is saying in a text is to be able to consider it in its larger context. That's actually how we're going to begin today. Because I'm guessing just parachuting right into Luke 20 is going to feel a little unfamiliar. So I want to prepare us by going back, what was happening beforehand, um, um, and I'll, I'll hint towards what's happening ahead Uh, But in order to understand this section in chapter 20, verse 27 through 40, um, knowing its broader context, not just uh, the paragraphs, but uh, the sections, maybe the whole uh, book of the Bible, we can kind of span back. One one of the beauties of us having the full revelation of God's word is that we can see one section of Scripture in view of all of Scripture. Uh, We want to look for key words. We want to look for key concepts. We want to remember our conjunction junctions. What's your function? Uh, Because those are the little gems that are helping us to be able to connect one phrase to another. if you had a study Bible, great. Commentary, cool. Uh, concordance, uh, maybe just a good Bible teaching friend. Those can sometimes be helpful to provide information to the text uh, that it might be harder for you to get to in the text. But I'll draw some attention to sections where I don't know that you necessarily need it to understand the, what, what God has given to us. And at the end, we'll, we'll try to summarize it. Does that sound good? That's my first step when I'm trying to understand the scriptures. I want to comprehend what's going on. So uh, as far as context goes, I want to take us back and remember, all right, chapter 20, there aren't many verses left in this book. We know that Luke is going to end with the death and resurrection of Jesus. That hasn't happened yet. Uh, So we are really in the last week of Jesus' life. Palm Sunday happened, he rides into Jerusalem in just a few days. Jesus is going to be crucified. He's going to be placed in a tomb and he's going to rise on the third day. As as believers, we we know that's coming. Um, But it might give us a little bit of help to understand what what just happened in chapter 19. So at the very end of chapter 19, there's this interesting verse, uh, verses 47, 48. And he was teaching, this is Jesus, and Jesus was teaching daily in the temple and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. So Jesus is entering into what I would say is a hostile environment, yeah? There are men who are looking to destroy him, but they've got a problem. They're thinking, we want to kill him, we want to destroy him, but... loves what he's teaching. So that little clue might help us understand the kind of context that we'll read here uh, in verses 27 through 40. But this concept of destroying Jesus is not new. This has been happening for a while. Uh, This is outside of Luke, but if you're familiar with just the general uh, timetable of Jesus' life, you know that one of the first times that they talk about wanting to destroy Jesus is after he raises Lazarus from the dead. Jesus raises a man from the dead, and then this exchange happens in John eleven forty five 45, um, through the end of that chapter. Many, I'm going to have to read it from this screen, my eyes are just too um, weak to be able to see the back screen. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees. And told them what Jesus had done. So, this is going to sound familiar. So, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And the crowds love the signs. If we let him go on like this, everybody will believe in him. And, and this is the reason why they want to kill Jesus. And then the Romans will come. And they'll take away both our place and our nation. And you can read what Caiaphas, the high priest, says as he prophesies in the verses in between. But then he concludes, so from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. We are nearing the climax of what is the gospel message, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But this is setting the context so that when we end up meeting our people in verse 27, we kind of get a flavor of what might be happening. So uh, if you would, let's read Luke 20, 27 through 40 together. There came to him some Sadducees, some of the chief priests, the scribes, the religious people that we mentioned that want to put Jesus to death. There came to him some Sadducees, and we get a little bit of the description here. Uh, Those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Here they provide a little bit of uh, story for Jesus. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. The second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. And afterward, the woman also died. And here's their question for Jesus. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. So I want to comprehend just maybe what's going on in this section. Well, there's the people who are coming to ask Jesus a question. But, based on what we know before, we know that they might not be asking a question to learn anything as much as a question to make Jesus look absurd. And sometimes when people ask you as Christians questions, it's not because they're necessarily looking for information, it's because they want to make you look stupid. And so that's a helpful realization for us, that not all questions are asked to learn. Some questions are asked to make somebody look absurd. And, and so they provide a situation. Now, if you had a study Bible, you might realize that they're referring to what's called a levirate marriage, and you might have a uh, cross-reference, or you might have a concordance that would take you back to Deuteronomy chapter 25, where Moses is describing this situation where if a man dies, uh, leaving no uh, children, no lineage. The brother of that man should marry his wife and try to provide children, particularly a son, to carry on the family name. This is something that God does to protect and preserve the nation of Israel. It helps to care for the women as well as provide um, direction for the family to continue in their home. And so the... the Sadducees are thinking, all right, we've got Jesus. He knows the Old Testament. He knows what Moses says. And they come up with this question to be able to ask him in this scenario. Seven brothers. This is either the most unfortunate woman of all time or the most dangerous woman of all time because she marries seven men, has no children, and then dies. And the Sadducees want to know Jesus, if you're so smart and this whole resurrection thing is for real, who is this woman married to in the resurrection? And, and maybe you're thinking, that's a good question. I've not thought about that before. You know, um, Maybe you were widowed and you remarried and now you're starting to think, okay, in heaven, which one am I going to be married to? The first one, the second one, both of them, what if you never married? And so the Sadducees are asking a question. I'd like to know. In heaven, who will we be married to? And so we're trying to do all of this little study, trying to put ourselves, ask the questions, what's going on, so we might understand what the author's saying. But this section doesn't end here because Jesus then answers their question. And so let's read that together. And Jesus said to them, Providing an answer to their question. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore. Because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answer, "Teacher, you have spoken, spoken well." for they no longer dared to ask him any question. And so Jesus, if we needed to provide a summary, Jesus is providing an answer to the Sadducees' question. How does he answer the question in verses 34 and 35? What's the answer? Well, Sadducees, here's the thing: There is no marriage in the resurrection. There is no marriage in the resurrection. In this age, people marry. In that age, people don't marry. Jesus' message to the Sadducees here, there is no marriage in the resurrection. And I'll come back to that point because that might be the first time. We don't, we don't preach on that message very often. I'm guessing at your wedding, that's not a verse that was read. There is no marriage in the resurrection. But you do say something similar when you say, till death do us part. Okay, so this is a covenant that lasts for a season. Till death separates us. Then that covenant is broken. Jesus goes on and he doesn't just provide an answer to the Sadducees question. There's no marriage in the resurrection. But then he provides uh, some reason for it. He gives actually uh, an explanation. So that word for in the beginning of verse 36... For, all right, that's one of those conjunctions. That's helping us to understand the reason for something. Uh, he just told us a fact, and then he's going to give reason for that fact. For we don't die. We we don't marry because in that age to come, we don't die. We are like angels. We are sons of God. We are sons of the resurrection. And we'll have to figure out what that means. But right now, we just know that God says, or Jesus says, there's no marriage in the resurrection. And he says, there's reason for it. And then, though I don't know that it's necessarily important for our discussion this morning, Jesus goes on to explain, hey, look, Sadducees, if you really want to know about the resurrection and find out for real that uh, you should believe in it, like the Pharisees and like most of the Jews do, well, then you should know what Moses said at the bush. And so if, if you either know your Bible, if you've got one of those cross-references, or drop down to your study notes, you might know. That's supposed to take us back to uh, Exodus chapter 3, where God comes to Moses in the burning bush, and he says to Moses, Moses, I am the God of your father. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Israel. I, I am I am the God. And Jesus is saying, because he says, I am and not I was... That means that Abraham still worships God, Isaac still worships God, Jacob still worships God. They are still his God. They are not dead, but alive. And now, admittedly, I think this is uh, tough to draw the conclusion that because God said to Moses, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that that means that there is a resurrection. There are clearer texts in the Old Testament. We read one of them last week when uh, Dr. Jim Hoffmeyer was here. Uh, Psalm 73, 25, 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire apart from you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever so there's a psalm that points to this idea that there is uh, an afterlife Daniel chapter 12 verse 2 um, I don't have that one memorized but I ought to probably I'll just read it quickly for you Daniel twelve two, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life some to shame and everlasting contempt. So Daniel's saying that there's a day coming when we will rise, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting death. Jesus could have taken the Sadducees to several other Old Testament passages that would suggest a resurrection, and he doesn't go to any of them. And I'm thinking, oh, Jesus, why do you do that? This is where I love studying the Bible. Why do you take them to Exodus 3 when you could have taken them to Psalm 73, Psalm one, uh, Psalm 16, Psalm uh, 139, Daniel 12. You could have gone lots of different places. Why there? And I think the reason um, is that Sadducees did not hold the entire Old Testament to be authoritative. And this is where you have to get a little bit of history. And, and like I said, it's not necessarily, nece- it's not necessarily necessary that you uh, know this to be able to understand uh, the text in 27 through 40. But you would know uh, in history... Sadducees were part of the wealthy aristocracy. Uh, they loved their position of power. Uh, they were more likely to be concerned with uh, appeasing Rome. Um, and they only, they were more like fundamentalists, they only held to the first five books of the Old Testament. And so when Jesus is trying to convince them of something, he argues from their own documents. He, he argues not from something they don't believe in, but he, he comes down to their level and argues on the basis of their own writings. Moses, you guys love Moses. Well, guess what? Sadducees, Moses believed in the resurrection, and here's a passage that would suggest that he did. Now, you don't need to actually know that, so you don't need to study Bible to find out certain facts like that, but uh, I love being able to dig deep and trying to figure out what does the author say. So if I had to summarize... um, I might say one of the things that this passage is teaching us that the author wants us to communicate is that there is no marriage in the resurrection. That would be one way to, if somebody asks you, what's, what's Luke chapter 20 verses 27 through 40 about? Well, Jesus teaches us a lesson. He tells us that there is no marriage in the resurrection. And if you had read that, I would say, okay, you've comprehended what you've read. Comprehension is not the end of our study. We want to move, in, move into the second stage, which is more interpretation. We want to know, what does that mean? Why did Luke choose to tell this story? What is its significance? Why should it matter? We will get to the point of, what should I do because of it? But Luke does not record everything that even the other gospel reader, writers include. Matthew and Mark include a great line, where if I was preaching this message, I might not center on marriage, but I might center on a line that Jesus says to the Sadducees in the same account that Matthew and Mark record. Jesus says to the Sadducees, is this not the reason you are wrong, that you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? I preached this section, or this, yeah, this section out of Mark a couple months ago, and I centered the whole message on the truth. You do, is this not the reason you are wrong you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Luke doesn't include that line. And I think it's because he wants us to focus on something other than the Sadducees not knowing the scriptures, the power of God. He wants us to see a little bit of what Jesus is teaching about marriage and resurrection. And so when it gets to interpretation, we get to think... What was the author trying to get me to understand? I've got some questions that I ask. All right, What was the intended meaning? This is just good general reading habits. What I'm saying to comprehend what people write and then try to interpret what people wrote. This is good practice for all of life. Whether you're reading scriptures or reading Facebook comments. Whether you're reading articles or the newspaper. We are in an age where people love to take people out of context and say, well, this person said this, so they must mean that. No, 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 no. What did they mean when they said it? Did they actually say that? Or are you putting words in their mouth? Are you creating a straw man that you can easily knock over? To be a good reader, to be a, in some ways just a, a good uh, friend, we should try to figure out what people say when they say stuff. What do they mean when they speak? Uh, second question on there, how does this passage challenge cultural beliefs? So we would have to think about, all right, what's going on in the culture? What's going on in this scene that, that Jesus would say what he said, uh, that the storyteller would, would include certain details about it? We have to think kind of culturally, uh, economically, ethic, ethnically about what's happening. And then how does this passage help me to understand the gospel? to to believe that the scripture is one book from beginning to end, helping us from Genesis to Revelation to to get an understanding of who God is, what we've done, and how we've been separated because of sin, and how his great love for us will reconcile us and all things to himself, and how he's going to do that through uh, a people group, how it's going to come to Christ, and then how everything transforms. Every storyline in the Bible is helping us to understand this story of redemption, And so one of the questions you can ask is, one of the reasons that the author includes this and that God in his divine inspiration includes this section in our scriptures, he wants us to be clear. He's going to provide clarity an ever-increasing understanding of his revelation. Uh, Other things that we might do during this interpretation time... Uh, is is to let clear texts interpret unclear texts. If you get to a section of scripture like, hi, I do not know what that means. See if there's another section where the author has made it very clear and then once you know the clear, you can understand the unclear. Uh, And during this phase, I'll just note that novelty is not a virtue when it comes to theology. Novelty is not, if you find something in the scriptures and you think, this is totally new. No one has ever thought about this before. There's probably good reason for it. And if it's not uh, part of our orthodox canon, you are on the verge of being a heretic. So be very careful if you find something and think, I've cracked it. I figured the code. I know the exact day Jesus is coming back. If you add up this passage and this passage, divide by four and do this. No, novelty is not a virtue when it comes to theology. And so I want to think, what does that truth, I said, Jesus's point here, there is no marriage in the resurrection. What does that mean? What does it mean that there is no marriage in the resurrection? Well, you think, well, Brandon, it means that there's no marriage in the resurrection. pretty straightforward. Yes, okay, but what is Jesus trying to, what's the broader or deeper truth that Jesus is getting us? Because I'm guessing that that truth Was a bit jolting for some of you. You might not have thought. I know at funerals, people long for, and their hope is placed in, well, at least he's now reunited with his wife, or she's now uh, reunited with her husband, or the family is now reunited. We put our hope in death in the reunion of family and husbands and wives some of you are thinking, Brandon, my marriage is the best thing that I have ever experienced on earth. We do that often in the church. We take marriage and put it on a pedestal and say, this is the ultimate fulfillment of who you were created to be. And we'll quote Bible verses. It's not good for man to be alone. And so We need to leave our mothers and fathers and be joined one together so we may become one flesh and do what God has called us to do, be fruitful and multiply. And God created marriage to fulfill some of what we were made for, for companionship, for partnership. And he's provided marriage and sexuality in this context that we might experience joy and pleasure, comfort, security. And marriage fits the bill for some of our deepest human cravings. And so you're thinking, okay, there's no marriage in heaven? There's no sex in heaven? If there's no sex in heaven, what's the point in going? And Jesus would say, okay, is this not the reason you're wrong? You know, neither the scriptures nor the power of God. What's Jesus trying to get us to see? And I make this statement. This age is good. That age is better. I try to use the language that the scripture uses. Jesus says, in this age people marry But in the age to come, in that age, they don't marry. And he gives reason. He says, and the reason is, is that we don't need marriage anymore. We live forever. We don't need to make babies. We are now united. We are sons with God. The process that we lost in the garden of being united with God, that relationship that was fractured back in Genesis, now is being revealed to be made new in the new resurrection. We do not need marriage. And so that's what makes me say, this age is good. There's nothing wrong with marriage. Marriage is so great. It might be the best thing that you've ever experienced and will experience on earth. But it's not our ultimate hope. This is good. What's coming up ahead is better. What's coming up ahead is better. I think C.S. Lewis gives us a good picture of what this might mean how we can wrap our minds around this idea that this age is good that age is better and sometimes I think C.S. Lewis is harder to read than the scriptures itself and so I'm going to do my best to uh, read it but here you go this is in one of his books called miracles C.S. Lewis says this and this I think is how it relates follow along the letter and spirit of scripture and of all christianity forbid us to suppose that life in the new, res- new creation will be a sexual life. And this reduces our imagination to the withering alternatives. One, either of bodies which are hardly recognizable as human bodies at all, or two, or else, of a perpetual fast, a perpetual fast. Sexual fast. As regards the fast, I think our present outlook might be like that of a small boy who, on being told that the sexual act was the highest bodily pleasure, should immediately ask whether you ate chocolates at the same time. On receiving the answer, no he might regard absence of chocolates as the chief characteristics of sexuality. Like, well, what's good is it? If it has no chocolate, what good is it? In vain would you tell him that the reason why lovers in their raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think of. The boy knows chocolate. He does not know the positive thing that excludes it. We are in the same position. We know the sexual life. We do not know, except in glimpses, the other thing, which in heaven will leave no room for it. When it comes to marriage and any good thing under the sun, we know that. We've tasted it. We've seen it. We can imagine it. And so in some ways, when we think about the resurrection, there's a sense in us that's like, I can't even, I can't even imagine if it doesn't have this, heaven might not have the things that you love now, but I can guarantee it'll be better. I've heard people say sometimes that they have been in a worship service and after a very exciting worship set, uh, somebody might say, well, it's good practice for heaven. I remember hearing a pastor say that as a kid and I thought, oh, I sure hope not. An eternal, everlasting worship service. This is what heaven is. And, and when I hear today, I think, I think that's just a small view. I do believe that this age is good, but I think that the age to come is a, of a different kind of pleasure. It is something similar but superior to what we experience here on earth. And so I think that we can conclude understanding what Jesus is trying to say, what the author is trying to mean, by saying, this is good, but that is better. Now, to, to know what it says and know what it means is good. But when we study our scriptures, we want to know, okay, so what? What difference should it make? Why does it matter? What should I do? And so we move from comprehension to interpretation and then into um, application. I want to know, what should we do? If that is true, then what? And so I think we ask some more questions. How should the scriptures, what's true, shape the way that I think and feel and act regarding everything? Now, this passage in particular, speaking about marriage and the resurrection, how should this concept of marriage and revelation, God's revealed truth about this topic of marriage and, and resurrection, how should it now shape the way that I think? How should the resurrection shape the way that I think about everything, feel about everything? Act in regards to everything. How does the good news of this text, how does this good news of the gospel that this story is telling us, how does it change the way that I should live? How does it how should it impact me? Those are questions you can ask to be able to apply the truth and then during this process be praying that the Spirit of God would give you the power to do what you know you ought to do. You know you have no power. The law has no power. Knowing what to do doesn't have any power. It's the gospel, it's the word that has power to transform you. And so you come to the Spirit and say, Lord God, help me to do what you want me to do and live in light of the news that you've given me. And make a plan. Uh, Sometimes, if you don't have a plan, uh, tomorrow comes, still don't have a plan. Uh, It's good to have a plan. What's your next step? Make it small. Next step, maybe for accountability, you tell a friend. Tell a friend what you read, what you believe it means, how you believe it's going to shape the way that you think about this particular area, and let them hold you accountable for it. And so when it comes to application, I'm going to give us three. If it's true that there is no marriage in the resurrection, and it's because this age is good, but that age is better, how should that impact us? First point that I'll give us. Relax and slow down Relax, slow down. Why? Because your ultimate hope is not in marriage or any other good thing. Now I'm speaking probably to relax to a uh, teenager, 20-something, 30-something, who's unmarried and is frazzled that they see their life passing you by. And I want to say relax. It's okay. Marriage is a good thing. Praise God if you get married. If you don't, single is not second rate in the church. God is not withholding any good thing from you. He is building up with you uh, the grace that you need for each day ahead. Relax. Your hope in this life is not in marriage. Marriage will not solve all your problems. Our hope is actually not in this world. It's in the one to come. And so because our ultimate hope is not here on earth, we can rest. So if your marriage is great, praise God, if it's not great, it's not the end of the world. Your hope remains secure even through the ebbs and flows of your marriage. Slow down. Relax and slow down. There are so many people trying to fill this life with everything. Everything. Like this life is all that matters. If there's no resurrection that really is, you have to fit everything into your life now. And we are running ourselves ragged, trying to jam in every experience, get every good thing. Because in some ways, we don't believe that there's a resurrection. And if we do, we don't believe that it's going to be better than now so I've got to build the best home, the nicest home. I've got to find ways to earn a living so that I might provide the best vacations, the best schooling. I've got to earn and I've got to do so that I might make the best use of time. There are a lot of people who are living in constant FOMO, fear of missing out on something, and it's driving them crazy. I think one of the reasons that there's so much anxiety in the world is we can't relax and we can't slow down, maybe because we don't have an understanding of the resurrection, that this age is good, that age is better. Second application point that I'll give us. Expand your capacity for joy. Expand your capacity for joy. And what I mean by that is, you were made for far more than what we find in this world. What happened in the garden is that we had the experience of being with the fountain of the living God who would have satisfied us in all ways that we need satisfying and we rejected him and turned to creation and tried to find other good things to fill our soul and make us satisfied. And everyone in here has experienced that things don't deliver, they disappoint. And, well, C.S. Lewis, again, this is from a different, this is from a message that he preached, The Weight of Glory. He says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, But too weak. We are half hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. And so, my suggestion. To remember the good news that God is restoring us to enjoy Him forever. He is our portion forever. We need to remind ourselves that nothing is going to satisfy us completely. Let's expand our joy. This week or in this month, take your wife, go out with a couple of friends, and go to a restaurant that is nicer than you probably deserve to be at. Order an item on that menu that is outside of your tax bracket. Something you would never do. And eat it. And enjoy it. And then whomever you're with, look in the eyes and say, that was so good. I was so good. That was the best meal I've ever had. But I know there's something better than this. And it's not here on earth. In heaven, I will feast like I've never feasted before. Remind yourself that the good things that you have, you see you have your kids and you look at them and you just beam with joy when you see your kids or your grandkids. When you beam with joy, remember, they're good, but there's something better ahead. Last point as we conclude. Persevere in disappointment. Persevere in disappointment because... God is our portion forever. A passage that Dr. Jim Hoffmeyer referenced last week out of Psalm 73. God is the good news of heaven. That when we turn from God and he set us on a trajectory to have Christ be our savior, the ultimate goal is not to just be in heaven with things on earth that we love. There are a lot of people who would think, yeah, if, if, if there was a heaven without God, I would surely want to be there. And I would say, you're missing the point. God is the gospel. God is the good news. God is the reason that we have hope in the future. God is going to be the one who satisfies our souls ultimately. And so that's a reminder to us that everything else is going to disappoint us. The best things on earth, your marriage, the thing that you crave most about that job or that ed- education, it's going to disappoint us. love him or hate him, Tom Brady is the best quarterback of all time, and challenge me later on it. There was an article or a uh, interview that he did back in 2005 uh, with 60 Minutes, and in that interview, they highlight that he had just uh, signed a 10-year, $65 million contract, just won his third Super Bowl, and um, the interviewer asked him how he's dealing with the, the fame, and he's like, you know what, it's tough. I've got all of this success here, but it comes along with a lot of baggage. And he says, There are a lot of people who might say, Hey, this is what it is, man. You've reached your dream, your life. And Tom Brady says, God, there's got to be more than this. And the interviewer ends up responding by saying, Well, what's the answer? And Tom says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. 2005, 15 years later, he's won three more Super Bowl rings. He's married to a supermodel. Uh, he's signed a four-year, $70 million contract and just signed another two-year for $70 million. He is a modern-day uh, king of Solomon in some ways. He's been able to experience, in the book of Ecclesiastes, is this search for meaning, the search of satisfaction under the sun. And he's experiencing some of the disappointment. He's like, it's not here, it's not here, it's not here none of us are going to be able to measure up to his success. And we might chase after it and chase after it, thinking, oh, it's just beyond the rainbow. But a lot of us know things don't satisfy, and it's because our heart was not made to find satisfaction in this age, ultimately. This age is good. That age is better. And we pray as we close. Father, we do... Believe that you are our Savior. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see what that salvation looks like. That we would not be like the Sadducees who picture heaven with a big, big house and big, big table and a big, big yard, but that we might have our minds. Blown by what lies ahead. And I pray, Lord, that the truth of the gospel, the good news that you have redeemed us and reconciled us to a future reunion with God Himself, that that would be good news for us. That would give us the ability to persevere when things don't happen, when we lose things that are precious to us or sacrifice things that are of value. I pray, Lord, that we would trust that you have not taken any good thing from us. I pray, Lord, that it would expand our capacity for joy and that we might enjoy things now but long for what's ahead. I pray, too, that it would give us peace and we might find rest in the future hope of the resurrection. That for those of us who are striving to earn, to squeeze as much juice out of this life as possible, that we might hold fast, that if all we do is faithfully bear witness to our belief that Jesus is worth it, that if we give no inheritance to our kids, no experience of vacation, uh, we don't provide the home or the car or whatever this world says we need to have, if we don't do those things, but bear faithful witness, that we have given our children, our friends a greater inheritance than anything those things could supply. Lord, let this truth permeate every area of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.